I think I would say what my intuition came and spoke to me that one day and said, hang on, it's going to be okay. Something big, something good is about to happen. Um, because I think so many times when we're in that midst of abuse, everything else closes in on us and we can't see a way out. And I wish that I had been able to go back and tell that younger version of Ashley that this sucks, this is not okay what's happening, but it's gonna be okay. You will get to the other side and you will experience healing and you're gonna make it, you're gonna make it. Today we have an interview with a dynamic and powerful voice sharing her story of survival. Ashley Easter grew up in a fundamentalist religious cult that has shaped her work in helping others who have experienced abuse in faith-based and non-faith-based situations. Ashley's work with her organization, Courage 365, is all about ending abuse and empowering lives. And today, co-host and Rural 29 teammate Katie McConville and I bring this interview to you. Thanks, Justin. It's great to be co-hosting this powerful episode. From the studio of Rural 29, this is Design Of a storytelling exploration featuring interviews with known and unknown extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. To get things started, Ashley kicks off with describing how her world was structured from a young age and helps explain terms and definitions that show up throughout this episode and her life. I grew up in an independent fundamentalist Baptist church, and there's about 20 different breeds of Baptists. So I'm not saying this is all Baptists. I'm talking about a particular group that I was involved in. Both of my grandfathers were pastors in this denomination, and um, they had very strict religious beliefs around um, what women could and could not do. Um, you know, it's very patriarchal. On top of this, I was also homeschooled, and while homeschooling can be a great choice, people do it for all different kinds of reasons. There's Olympic athletes that have been homeschooled so they can really hone their craft. Um, our reason for homeschooling was a lot more um, religious-based. It was a lot more um, being afraid of the outside world. So I like to kind of layer my story like this. So I grew up in this very patriarchal church. Um, and then inside of homeschooling and then in the homeschooling movement there's these little small movements inside and one of those movements is actually called the patriarchy movement like <laughs> no kidding like they just flat out call it that um so the patriarchy movement is this idea that women are to be under the power and control of men in the home church society and so women are only to be submissive to their husbands and to basically stay at home, take care of children, and, you know, say yes to sex. Um, that's kind of a woman's role. The man's role is to be the breadwinner, the big decision maker. So homeschooling movement, inside of that is the patriarchy movement. Inside of that is something called the quiverful movement. It's kind of like those little um, Russian nesting dolls where you yeah. know, each doll gets smaller, but it's the uh, same great doll. metaphor, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the quiverful movement is this idea that... Um, they take this verse out of Psalms in the Bible, children, um, uh, blessed is the man who has a quiver full of children, basically, and taking this idea that the more children you have, the more blessed you are. But then there's sort of a dystopian idea behind it. It's this idea of if you have 10 children and they're 10 children have 10 children, those 10 children have 10 children. After 200 years, we'll have this astronomical amount of descendants and we will overpopulate the world. We will dominate the world through overpopulation. 
and with our patriarchal message. So women's role in that movement is to have all of those babies and then um, shoot them out like arrows into the world, into the government, into media, into schools, into all different major sectors of society to like take over the world basically. Inside of the Quiverful movement is the stay-at-home daughter movement. And while adult women who are married have a clear role, they're like, what the heck do we do with unmarried women? Um, Like, we can't just have them running around not submitting to anyone. So they came up with this idea of being a stay-at-home daughter where you submit to your father until he literally or metaphorically gives you away in marriage to another man that you submit to and um, then, you know, you continue that cycle. And so in this, you know, layered movement of oppression, um, not really having a lot of contact with the outside world in meaningful ways, uh, I define this as a cult. Um, in my experience and what I have researched about cults, there were multiple forms of abuse that I experienced inside this movement. And um, really, it wasn't till I left the cult and began talking about my experiences publicly that, you know, um, my life really began to shift and change. Um, But that is where I came from. And that's why I'm so passionate about the work I do today to help abuse survivors. Hmm. Well, I have... Thank you for sharing that. I have so many questions. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the the word cult, right? That yeah, I'm sure that for people listening, you know, create so many visuals, whatever their, you know, experience with that is from media, whatever. So you had said something interesting about how you were more or less, you know, sheltered from the outside world. What did that look like? Like, how did that happen? Because, you know, today, you know, I have four kids and, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes, and I don't say this jokingly, like sure. um, making light of your story, but I wish sometimes I could reduce their influence that they get from social media and that sort of thing. So what did that look like for you? Sure. No, that makes sense. And, you know, responsible parents do try to give some structure and some sheltering to children. There are things that children don't need to see. They don't need to see porn. They don't need to see, you know, a variety of things that are not safe in the world. But in my experience, it was more so our only community. The only people we connected with were the people in this church. And they thought the same way. They acted the same way. They had very similar controlling beliefs, some more, some less. And then because we were homeschooled, um, we didn't even have that outlet of, okay, we're going to see other kids even in a private school, you know, or a a public school. So pretty much the main social interactions were people who thought exactly the same way we did or very similar to the way we did. Um, And everybody else on the outside, it wasn't just that they had different perspectives. It was that this was dangerous and evil Mm -hmm. and that we needed to be protected from other points of view in the world. Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, just real quickly. One of the key markers of a cult is the us against them mentality. So um, instead of being allowed to see other opinions and beliefs and some things you agree, some things you disagree, it was more so this is dangerous. This is evil. We must be completely separate. Thank you. Sorry about interrupting you. Uh, What about your education, uh, homeschooling? is it fair to say that the way um, women were educated in the homeschooling environment in this cult was different than the way men were? Um, I would say yes. Um, 
I would also say that that varied by family. Mm. I have looked back and I'm really not in touch with my family now, but I feel like my siblings had different homeschooling experiences than I did. Being the first child, kind of the guinea pig, being the oldest girl, you know, just having different expectations of, you know, childcare and things like that um, from time to time. Um, but I would say most of high school, I schooled myself, you know, I helped schedule the school that I was going to do. I helped choose the books I was going to do. I tried to as ethically as possible <laughs> administer my own tests. Um, you know, I had a tutor for math because I'm dyslexic and that was a little bit difficult, but the majority of the schoolwork that I did, I educated myself. And mm -hmm. while I'm proud of myself for, you know, doing the best I could as a child, um, it really wasn't a good replacement for um, a real teacher. And the materials I was given had a lot of faulty information, whether that was, you know, history books or whether that was um, science curriculum. So it's taken a while to untangle that stuff. <laughs> sure. Um, <clears throat> thanks for sharing that. I was reading your uh, story this week in preparation to talk to you. And um, as a, as a dad, I have four kids, so two boys, uh, two girls, and uh, my youngest is a freshman. And I realized that my time with her, you know, is coming, um, it's going to enter into a new chapter soon. Right. And I read a story of, uh, I, th I think a line in your story about your dad, where he actually made arrows with kids names on it. <laughs> yes. So yeah. what was the representation of that? Yeah. So back to us, you know, being in the quiverful movement, you know, they took that verse so literally about children being like arrows in a mighty man's quiver, less is the man whose quiver is full of them. So my dad, you know, not only did we have this ideology, but he did create a small business around that, making his own arrows, engraving names on them, making his own quivers, selling them to large families. If I remember correctly, I think he sent some to the Duggars, 19 kids and counting, mm -hmm. some large, you know, popular families who were similar in beliefs to us. This is the story of my family. We're the Duggars. That's me. I'm Michelle. There's Jim Bob, my wonderful husband. And our so yeah, there was that Josh. symbolism. I remember when um, I graduated from high school, and I put that kind of in quotes, <laughs> um, I was given my own quiver, um, presumptively to fill with children eventually. Yeah. Mm. Wow. So... You graduate high school mm -hmm. and you're in this community. So yeah. what happened next for you? What was the next yeah. phase in, in your trajectory? Right. Well, for a lot of people who graduate high school, um, their next step is college. And I graduated at 16 uh, years old, which is younger than most people do. Again, I was educating myself. So, you know, my parents yeah. had some involvement, but <laughs> a lot of it was done by myself. And um, I decided not to go to college. A lot of women, a lot of girls who are in the um, stay-at-home daughter movement, the quiverful movement, they don't go to college. Um, I wasn't forbidden from going to college, though there were some women in the church who I think their parents were a lot stricter about that. But it simply didn't make sense because with this plan that your role as a woman is to get married and to have, you know, 10 children-ish, and then uh, homeschool them, like, 
the the idea like my mom got married at 18 um, my grandmother got married at 19 you know so I'm 16 and I'm like well I probably got two years to go before I get married why would I waste the time and money on an education um, so I began writing a blog called State Home Daughter and just kind of talking about my life as a stay-at-home daughter very positively about how women should be submissive to the patriarchy um, all those kinds of things i had leadership gifts and things kind of bubbling inside of me but they were really kind of squelched down by this community so that was an outlet i had was i could write about it and as long as i was writing about submitting to the patriarchy like i could have a leadership role there <laughs> um but I ended up getting engaged. I was in a courtship and difference between dating and courtship. Courtship isn't quite arranged marriage, but it has high parental involvement, a lot of strict rules and things. And so I was tracking down, you know, the line to get married and the relationship was very toxic and abusive. Mm -hmm. And um, there were a lot of things in that relationship were, that were very harmful to me. Um, we were already engaged. It was very public. I had thousands of people following my blog where I blogged about this relationship. I was the pastor's granddaughter, so very visible kind of glass house feeling. So when I got to a point where I'm like, I'm afraid I can't do this anymore. And I broke off the relationship. Like, um, that was such a, a public thing in my community. Um, and I went through this time of dark depression, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety attacks and all the common things. Um, and there was a point in that time where I, I didn't even want to keep living because it was just, it felt so hopeless. Um, but I remember this is, um, this is something that is, I don't know, still kind of difficult for me to talk about a little bit, but I was at a point where I was just so overwhelmed, like I wasn't sure how I was going to keep going, but I heard this um, internal voice, which I now identify as my intuition, um, came and spoke strongly to me that keep going, like something big, something good is about to happen. And hearing that like gut feeling, that internal voice, and I was like, wow, okay, I'm just going to keep hanging on. and. I started to kind of like kind of grip back onto life again and you know want to live and want to to change things um, and I got to a point where I was like maybe interested in meeting more people realizing this system though I was still trying to live within it maybe I needed to stretch out of it a little bit in ways that might be acceptable and a friend of mine introduced me to a guy at a coffee shop. I was able to visit her. She was from the church. So she was working at this coffee shop, introduced me to this guy who believed in equality for women. And we had sort of this debate. And at the time it was like a theological conversation. And I had never heard this idea of equality for women before from this angle. And he said he was a Christian and that Jesus was still cool with equality. And I was like, what? I'm a pastor's granddaughter. That is a lie. <laughs> that right. is a lie. And so I was kind of pissed off at him. Um, but he kept kind of poking at me, you know, like sending me messages on Facebook and trying to get my attention. And so let me do like, this really quick, Ash. Let me just yeah. pause you right there because I don't want to go too far down. Okay. Yeah. The yeah. Transformation. No, it's good. I didn't, you were, you were rolling. I didn't want to interrupt you. So no, that's fine. Um, where you feel comfortable. Yeah. Could you share? like what sorts of things were present in that relationship or during that time mm -hmm. that made it 
toxic for you. Um, and I, right. I ask only because I think um, if anyone listens to this and has any thing similar happening, right? I'd love for them to be able to identify what that is. And I know we'll talk about that a little bit later with what sure, you do yeah, now, yeah. But, but for you at that time, like what made you right. start thinking like, whoa, this is not what yeah. I want. Yeah, absolutely. So some of the things in that toxic courtship um, that were really painful for me, first of all, I was already coming from a very toxic, high control environment, but this relationship was even more high control than what I was used to. And so um, he would get upset with me if I didn't feel well. Like if I was on my menstrual cycle and didn't feel well and wasn't my happy, cheery self, he would be upset with me for not always being positive and happy. Um, he was very controlling about what I ate, when I ate, how I did my hair, what I wore, those kinds of things. Um, there was a time where we were in a vehicle together and I wanted to go home, but he didn't want me to go home yet. And so he just drove around my neighborhood and wouldn't let me out of the car for a long time. Um, and those were things that I started realizing, like, I don't feel like I have any freedom of self-expression. I f don't feel like I have any assurance that I can just go back home when I'm done <laughs> having a conversation. Yeah. Um, there were there were just a lot of things, but, you know, putting me down for things that um, really were not my fault. I always felt like I was walking on eggshells, trying not to upset him. And there was a higher amount of conversation about submission than even my parents um, had. So that was like a huge topic of conversation for us and just how me as a woman, I should submit to him. And I was like, not even my husband yet. Yeah. <laughs> and, so that was my question. So yeah. is this going on? Like who could you in your community at the time before you went to the coffee shop? Who could right. you have turned to? Um, was there anyone in your community that you could talk to and say, hey, is this, you know, it seems out of bounds to me. Right. I did go and talk to my grandfather about a couple things that I felt like were unhealthy and that I was unsure about in this courtship. But he really kind of, you know, shrugged them off um, and really didn't feel like they were that big of a deal. And what you have to remember is when somebody is disclosing abuse to you, they're probably not going to say, hey, I've just been abused because they're still grappling with what's happening to me. Is this abuse? Is this OK? You know, I'm starting to feel crazy because that's a tool abusers often use um, to keep you silent. So when you reach out to somebody, you're probably just giving them the tip of the iceberg and waiting for them to even just say a small thing of affirmation like, you know, that's not okay. That's kind of weird. You know, what else is going on? But instead of that, it was just, you know, oh, I'm sure it'll work out. And, you know, do you really think he'd do that to you? Those, those types mm -hmm. of things. And so, yeah, after I broke off the engagement, I, you know, talked to my family about more things and to some extent they understood, but um, I was encouraged to keep, quiet about it in the community, just tell people he's a good guy who loves the Lord. It just didn't work out. Um, so there was a lot wish, of- What do you wish your grandfather or, your, or, your, or the people around you would have said at that moment? I wish that when I had started talking about some of the little things that 
um, were really harming me. That somebody had just said, your feelings are valid about that. Um, tell me more. Uh, I believe you. Um, you know, you're right to think that's strange and off. And let's let's dive into this. I wish I wish even if somebody didn't know what a complete trauma informed response could be, that they would just have believed me and encouraged me to feel safe sharing more information, and that they'd affirm that no, that that doesn't sound right. <laughs> Yeah. So that makes even more, thank you for sharing that. So that makes even more sense to me as far as your coffee shop conversation, how shocking that must've been to hear someone say, say that. And I'm going to say this and and please don't take offense to it um, because it it is so different than, you know, I grew up. So my question is when uh, the gentleman in the coffee shop said that, that women are equal to men, had you never heard that or thought that before? Is that possible? That's a good question. So I had been taught that there were some people who maybe theologically called themselves egalitarian in the Christian movement or called themselves feminists and that they were evil, that they were trying to destroy the church, trying to tear apart the family, that they were everything that was wrong with the world. And that if women would just submit, like they were God ordained to do, a lot of the problems in the world would be solved. And so, yes, I'd heard that women could be equal, but I'd only heard it through the lens of, and when women are viewed as equal, when they can make their own choices, that's dangerous to them, their families, and the entire planet. (laughs) So hearing that it could be a good and safe thing was a lot for me to take in. Mm. I'm sorry that that as part of your story then. Thank you. Okay, so Katie, what's your response when you hear Ashley, you know, uh, just have a, a life, you know, up to that point where she literally felt that men and women were not equal? Yeah, it's definitely a totally different perspective. And, you know, when she said that, I kind of got goosebumps because it was exciting that, you know, it was almost like someone was like shaking her saying, hey, like you have more potential that you have total access to. Um, So I was just, I felt like that was a really exciting moment for her life and how she could, you know, change her whole world perspective. And um, seeing that you are a female and I'm a male, um, uh, just to make (laughs) sure everyone knows that that's uh, what's going on here. Uh, In your life up to this point, have have you felt that? Have you experienced that where you've um, felt you know, unequal or? Yeah, I think um, just growing up as a female, there's always that little bit of expectation or I guess gender roles that you feel you should fall into. Um, I grew up a huge tomboy. So um, (laughs) the biggest thing for me was to try and be always just as good as the boys, if not better in anything that was possible. So video games, sports, you name it. That was where I wanted to try and like prove myself each and every day. So yeah, it's definitely, I think, something that's, I don't know, innately present, but um, I think what Ashley experienced was to a whole other level. So, coffee shop. This guy yeah. tells you something that you're like, what? And you're pissed. So, what do you do? Right. So, I tried to just distance myself from him. I was like, my friend introduced me to you, but like, this is, 
this is a bunch of weirdness. Um, you're trying to lead me astray, um, <laughs> all this stuff. But he kept like poking at me a little bit and he would like send me messages and, you know, just trying to keep the conversation going. And um, the stereotype is true. Homeschoolers are notoriously good debaters. So I was like, we're going to have to have a debate then. And I see the irony now, a woman who was promoting submission, trying to teach a man why he was wrong. I see that irony at the time. I did not. <laughs> there was the, 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 the path was already set right then. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, but to be a good debater, you have to know both sides of the argument. You have to know your opponent's side better than they do. So you can find their weak points and knock the legs from underneath them and win, win the debate. So I had already studied in depth from a theological perspective, this idea of patriarchy and why it was right. And I knew all the big theologians. I was set on that side. But to get prepared for this debate, I was like, I'm going to have to research uh, feminism. I'm going to have to research um, egalitarianism, which is the theological term in the Christian church for equality for women. And my intention was to show him why he was wrong. But when I started researching it, I was like, wow, this actually isn't all that crazy. Um, huh. This actually makes a lot more sense with like the way Jesus showed up in the world and treated women. This actually makes a lot more ethical sense when you see the connection between patriarchy and abuse. And hmm, I wonder if there could have been a connection with my abuse of patriarchy. And then looking at it from, you know, intellectual, social, theological standpoints, the debate didn't have to happen because the research convinced me mm. and that that was so scary and everything in my life changed at that point yeah i was gonna ask you like how did that feel because it, in some ways it would you would think my, my first gut instinct was like wow that must have felt awesome and freeing but if it's if it just completely demolished your your up to that point your life view the construction right. of the world like that had to be terrifying it was terrifying and i remember i always stayed up late because we lived in a big family a small house and that was the only time you could be alone and just like having t tears streaming down my face knowing that if i started believing this and i had enough evidence to know that it was probably true um that women were equal like everything would shatter you know my relationship with my parents my church the way i identified myself as a woman in the world, my goals, everything would fall apart and people would be really upset with me because now I would be one of those dangerous feminist women that I've been taught my whole life to be afraid of. And so there was that piece um, that was really scary. But then the other big thing was all of my choices for my entire life had always been able to lean back on the fact that a man had approved it or a man had decided for me. So if I was equal and I now had the power to make decisions, that meant the buck stopped with me and I was now gonna be accountable for every decision I made in my life. And nobody taught me how to do that. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was terrifying and my family responded pretty much the way I thought they would. Uh, not pleased, uh, very scary time in my life, but Ultimately, it was the best decision I ever made doing that research because it led me to freedom. It showed me that there's another side of the world out there. And that was the thing 
that made me realize I got to get out of here. I think this is a cult. And wow, there's a lot of other beliefs in this system other than patriarchy that are pretty messed up as well. So <clears throat> it seems like uh, shift number one happened when you broke off the relationship. Major yeah. big shift number two happened when you had this uh, debate that you single-handedly um, uh, <laughs> lost and won at the same time <laughs> uh, on your research. Um, so, wow. What, I mean, what happened then? Well, then things were really tense with my family. Um, and I was still living at home. The only job I had was like a nanny job that was, you know, kind of part-time pay. I hadn't been to college, didn't really know many people in the outside world. Um, we had this, I think it was like eight hours worth of really intense conversation with my parents and grandparents, them trying to, you know, call me back in. Um, and I kind of gave them an ultimatum. I was like, I now realize that, you know, I'm an autonomous being <laughs> and I'm either going to have to be treated like an adult while I'm living in your home, which I know that's what you'd prefer me to do is stay in your home or I'm going to have to leave. And no, I don't really have the money for that. And yes, I just bought this crappy car. Um, and I don't really have any options, but that's kind of on the table. And so we came up with sort of this um, solution of while I was physically in the house, I obeyed the rules, but outside of it, I didn't really, didn't work that well. Um, <laughs> but I spent my time in that crappy car that was breaking down just about every other week. And I started doing really wild, rebellious stuff, like going to the movie theater and going swing you. dancing, you know, crazy stuff, <laughs> listening to Taylor Swift. Looking for has been here the whole time. If you could see the one who you through that experience, I started seeing, oh, wow, the world isn't as scary and dangerous as I thought. Dancing doesn't immediately lead to a pregnancy. Um, you know, all of these different things that I I was just shocked about. I started dating instead of courting where I had, you know, choice in relationships and things. And how old were you then? Yeah, I was uh, 21. Okay. Yeah. Um, and my friend at the coffee shop who'd introduced me to that guy, we became pretty close and she tried to set me up with some people. Didn't work out as well, but it was good to experience you know, real dating. Yeah. And then her mom set me up with my now husband, Will Easter. And it was, mm -hmm. it was amazing. Like he treated me with respect and equality. He didn't know all my baggage. I didn't know all my baggage, but <laughs> he, you know, put up with my family for that first while until, you know, I ended relationship with them. Um, he was sensitive about the abuse I'd experienced. He taught me what consent was, which was like a pretty foreign concept to me. And mm. really, while I am a self-made woman, I'm a feminist, I'm not ashamed to say that he rescued me. Our marriage was like a rescue to get me out. And now I had a safe place to take back control while still adjusting to the quote unquote real world that I didn't have much experience in. That's amazing. And since I've had the opportunity to meet your husband, he is pretty wonderful. Oh my gosh, he's he's the best. Like, go feminist husbands, they're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, so during this period, just out of curiosity, you'd written a blog uh, years yeah. earlier, 
really yeah. you know pushing the the attributes and the the you know um I'm not sure the right term and the methodology of the belief system, mm-hmm. you know, that you're kind of growing up in. So, um, is it fair to say you had to process that because, you know, now you were anti that or, you know, counter that. Right. And, yeah. Yes. So there was a time where my blog kind of went dormant for a while. Um, because I was just trying to figure things out. Like I didn't know what I thought. I didn't know what I believed anymore because the thing about pulling out, a piece like patriarchy, when your whole life has been built on that, it's like the Ajenka tower where you pull out that one block and then everything collapses. So I wasn't just dealing with, okay, now women are equal. I'm also dealing with, you know, things like, is the rest of the stuff they told me true? And oh my gosh, you know, evolution is real. And oh my gosh, you know, history is really different than it was presented to me, you know, these, these types of things. So there was a dormant period. Um, and then I wrote a, um, I don't know if it was exactly apology letter, but something along those lines, just saying, Hey, um, I was in an abusive relationship. Uh, a lot of things have changed. I don't believe the stuff that I used to believe. And I'm really sorry for leading anybody astray. I honestly thought this was true, but I realize it's not now. And I apologize for that. And then I started a new blog and I started writing about um, basically me just figuring out life on the other side and deconstructing the beliefs and reconstructing new ones. I started writing about experiences of, you know, abuse and toxicity that I'd had because the courtship was not the only abusive experience um, in my childhood or in my adulthood. And it was really that was the thing when I started talking about that other people were drawn to it they shared their stories with me and the abuse that churches had covered up and faith leaders had covered up or even caused the abuse themselves and that's really kind of what launched me into this you know advocate activism career realizing like wow I'm not alone I thought I was alone in all this but there's like hundreds of thousands of people who've live this similar life and we've got to do something because they feel alone and and they're not there's so many of us yeah <clears throat> thank you for that too so you know when when you started writing that blog or even when you were um doing your research for the debate and, and even now like did you was that like library and internet like how did you go about getting the information um especially back in the day when it 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 sounds like you may have had limited access or right so i use the internet and if it wasn't for the internet i'd probably still be in the cult um and i know people kind of say a lot of stuff about the dangers of social media and online and i just want to say the internet's also saving lives too so there's mm-hmm. kind of two sides to that debate but um i because i had the stay-at-home daughter blog i you know, had purchased my own laptop to be able to write on that. Um, And so that was helpful for some research, but you know, you're still kind of not a lot of privacy, but um, I ended up getting a smartphone during that time when I was questioning everything. And that was like the greatest gift because it's so small. You can take it in under the covers in bed with you to look at. You can, you know, close the bathroom door and look on it. You know, there's so many ways you can research. 
And there was a particular book that I read. It was called Quivering Daughters, which was about other uh, women who had left this patriarchy quiverful movement and just the similarities and understanding how my parents probably would respond and them responding exactly that way. Um, you know, reading from Christian feminists and realizing that they're not out to kill people and, you know, damage society. They actually maybe have their own children and love them, you know, <laughs> those kinds of things. So really that exposure through the internet um, was where the research happened. And if I hadn't had access to that, you know, I only would have probably had the books that were, you know, given to me. Katie, I, I just want to know from your perspective, like when you heard her say that, I was, you know, I got the chills because, you know, up to that point, she'd only had required reading or reading that was, you know, um, given to her that was pre-approved. I mean, what did you think when she was saying that the internet or her smartphone, um, you know, basically saved her life? I think it's amazing. And it's just a testament to the world we live in now and how it can change lives for the better. Um, I can only think of if, you know, she didn't have that smartphone, something to hide away and, you know, do her own research on her own time. I, I just, I can't imagine where Ashley would be now. And she's changed so many lives throughout the course of her life. So, I mean, I'm just really thankful she got her hands on a smartphone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's not usually what we say these days, right? But thank right. goodness that she got that. <laughs> so I have a, I have a bunch of questions about where you're at now and, sure. and they're really more around having conversations. Yeah. So I would love if you would just give, you know, kind of an overview of what you do now and, and coupled with this, with this question, if I am one who is um, being abused or I know of someone who mm. I feel is being abused, yeah. what can I do? Mm. Yes. Yes. Oh, thank you for being vulnerable with that. Like I, I know it's hard to, to speak up and say things. And I know there's particular challenges for men speaking up. And so I just want to honor, you know, your voice there. Um, sort of an overview first is when I started writing that blog and talking about my experience, like I mentioned, you know, hundreds of people reached out and they were like, I've experienced this too, but I feel so alone and isolated. I feel like nobody else is going through this, but that obviously wasn't true because hundreds of people were saying, very similar things. So I was like, to fix this, we got to get in the same room so people know they're not alone. So in 2016, we launched the Courage Conference and we did just that. We had a sold out event. We had people from all over the country come and we listened to uh, survivors who are further in their healing journeys, different experts, mental health professionals, um, lawyers, all those types of things. And mainly we just got in a room and realized that like, okay, I can feel that I'm not alone. Like it's one thing to talk about it in a Facebook group. It's one thing to send a direct message to somebody that you read their story online, but it's a completely other thing to be totally surrounded by a large group of people that's like, yeah, I've either been abused or I'm really close to somebody who was and I wanna help them. Um, so that's how the Courage Conference started. It morphed into Courage 365. Um, we did an online event this year, but you know, we've had five conferences. Um, you know, I've written a book, uh, The Courage Coached, A Practical Friendly Guide on How to Heal from Abuse, which isn't an answer to everything, but it's a where to start, 
what can you do? What are some steps you can take? Um, but what I would want survivors to hear is number one, you aren't alone. You are not alone. Like what happened to you, there are individualistic things to you that make it unique. And so I don't want to say that, you know, I've experienced the exact same thing that you have, but there are other characteristics of what you've experienced that hundreds of thousands of people have experienced too. Okay. It's not your fault that this happened to you. It is never the victim's fault. There's never anything you could ever do wrong, even terribly wrong, that would make it okay for somebody to abuse you in whatever way, shape, or form that was. Uh, so first of all, I just want you to hear that and know that. Um, and then I would say if you're in a place where you feel lost and you do feel that, you know, aloneness, first, just reach out to one person that you know is a safe person in your life. Um, you've got to be careful with your story, particularly in the beginning, because there are some ignorant people. There are some um, people who maybe mean well, but are just, they just don't know what they're talking about. And then there are other people who are actively dangerous. So try to pick one safe person in your life and just share what you feel comfortable with and allow yourself to receive that feeling of, oh, okay, I'm seen. And then maybe from that point, consider reaching out to a professional therapist, somebody who specializes in the type of abuse that you've experienced. So I like to interview therapists before I even sit down with them. Sometimes I've done this for survivors on their behalf. You don't have to tell your whole story on the phone call during the interview, but just say X, Y, or Z, these are the things I need you to be skilled in. How many clients have you worked with? you know, around these issues mm. to make sure that that person knows. And then for somebody who is, you know, there to try to support survivors who maybe hasn't gone through it themselves, if somebody ever reaches out to you, it is your job to be kind, be compassionate, be predisposed to believe, to um, support them. It's not your job to pry and push and ask for more details. Um, if a child is involved, please report to the police immediately. Don't try to investigate it on your own. Get the professionals involved. If it's an adult, holding that space and just being that safe person can make a big, a big deal in their life. It can change the trajectory of everything in their life. Um, and then for both of those groups, get in community. Um, Courage365, we've got a Facebook group. We do do live events, but there's other things I'm sure in your own community. Um, getting around other people who've gone through it or who are supporting people who've gone through it, that's really going to make a difference. Um, that's really going to make a difference. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. So um, I only have a couple more questions here, but so Courage, Courage 365, your organization, so um, how would you describe it? Why does it exist? How does it work? Mm -hmm. Right. So very excited to be having a whole um, overview of our website redone and some of our messaging cleared up. And, you know, we thank you all for for working on that project with us. We're super excited. Um, but Courage has really gone through a journey. So we started with those in-person conferences and we've done them for five years. This last one was online because of COVID. Um, 
and just giving people resources, giving them the experience of being together in communities and in groups, in person, hearing speakers. Um, we always have tables with resources and those types of things. So that's kind of where it started. Other things that we're doing is we have the Courage 365 show. We'll be kicking off season two in February. It's um, a free live stream that we stream to Facebook, uh, Twitter, and YouTube. You can tune in every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern. And we have different experts on the topic of abuse and healing. And it's always really empowering. We try to uplift and not, you know, just stay in the heavy stuff, though we are not afraid to address that. Um, and then we're also developing some other programs and things that can, you know, train and also foster some local community because it's great to have a national support system, a support system that you can see once a year at an event. But we're really shifting our model to try to find a way to identify leaders in local communities so you can go back home and still have a support system. So that's that's what we're developing. Um and so, yeah, it's it's really about education. It's really about community. It's really about you not feeling like you're alone anymore. Um, and you don't have to be religious. A lot of our abuse survivors have come from religious backgrounds. And that's kind of what our specialty has been in previously. But we're not a religious organization. Um, we really value diversity and we're always trying to grow in that area. So. We welcome all survivors and would, would love if anyone needs the support for them to reach out to us. Awesome. Yeah, I think often, you know, uh, our, our stories are actually really similar. I remember as a kid, oftentimes, you know, uh, being in my room alone and just, you know, just thinking there's, I don't know what, do I want to even see tomorrow? Right. And then having that voice, whatever you want to call that voice. Yeah. Saying like, Tomorrow the sun's gonna come up. Right. And we'll deal with tomorrow tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know why mm -hmm. uh, that that was clear to me then. I'm grateful for it because yeah. I know there's a lot of people sadly in my life who didn't see the next day. So um, yeah. yeah. Well, Ashley, you are, uh, wow. You're such a gift. Thank you for, uh, giving us this time sharing your story with us um we're truly honored to play whatever role we can play for for you and will and what you're doing in the world it's so incredibly needed and and um i just want to say thank you well thank you i really appreciate you and your podcast your company um and i'm just glad that you're willing to have conversations like this and particularly as a man and as a male survivor, um, you know, I realize how much courage this takes. And I, I don't mean that lightly just because our organization, you know, has courage in the name, but like I, I realize that there's courage there. And when conversations like this can happen, courage just builds and it's, it's contagious. And so I know this is gonna reach somebody. And so thank you for facilitating this. If this episode spoke to you, or if you know someone who needs help right now, go to courage365.org for a variety of resources from abuse and suicide prevention to legal and counseling services and more. Just want to say thank you to Ashley for sharing her voice so others know they're not alone. They can take a step 
and use their voice to support others that find themselves in a dark place. To help end abuse and empower lives, it takes us all to listen, believe, and be there for each other. For more on Ashley and Courage 365's work, please visit courage365.org. I would also like to thank Sleeping At Last for providing our show's soundtrack now in our seventh season. For more information on Ryan and his music, go to sleepingatlast.com or search for Sleeping At Last wherever you get your music. And to Design of's audio engineer, Steve Wick, who was inspired by Ashley's courage and readiness to share her truth. What do we all belong to, Sam? There's some good in this world, Mr. Furl. And it's worth fighting for. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we did making it, even if it did discuss harder topics. If so, please give us a ranking on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell others about our show and stay tuned for the next episode. Please follow us on Twitter at Design of Podcast and check out our site at rule29.com forward slash design of podcasts. And before I say see you next episode, hey, Katie, it was great doing this episode with you. Thanks for having me. Nailed it. Sweet.